It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Peacock Streaming. The biggest sports and live events on the planet. From Super Bowl 56. What a game this is. To complete coverage of the Winter Olympics. Streaming every event, every day. Yes! It's all the unprecedented. United States wins gold. Unstoppable. Sensational. Unbelievable. Sports to love. Sign up now at PeacockTV.com. Hey, 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 Nigel, can you hear us? Hi, uh, yes, I can. How are you doing? We're doing great. We're, we are most well, most well. Looking sharp, Nigel, looking sharp. Yeah, it's been a long day, mate. So, um, <laughs> you know, when you only say one minute before the podcast about to start that you're going live, does it give you, does it give you much chance to get changed, does it? No, I'm si- no. I'm sitting in my gym jams. But we, do, we, we, we have a strictly, a strict pyjama welcome policy on this podcast so don't worry about that you're overdressed if anything well that's good else you'll be needed to find someone else very quickly <laughs> exactly <laughs> and that's why we that's why we employed the pyjama rule in the first place yeah. <laughs> um right so we start recording pod then pete mirror man mirror man you twist and turn my mind until i don't know who i am mirror man Good evening and welcome to a new edition of the Arsenal Opinion Podcast. If you weren't expecting this because it's not on the whistle, that is correct. But we've got an extremely special guest on today. We welcome Nigel Winterburn to the podcast. Welcome, Nigel. Yeah, good evening, everybody. Nice to uh, be on. Well, I'm hopefully going to be saying that at the end as well. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Johnny, do you want to... How did this happen, Johnny? Like, why have we got an Arsenal legend on the Arsenal Opinion Podcast? What's going on? Um, well, obviously, through working at Arsenal when I was doing lots of um, the kind of joint punditry with Nigel and various other ex-players, I managed to build up somewhat of a relationship with Nigel. Hopefully, semi-likes me at least. Um, and um, we've managed to somewhat stay in touch. And he helped me out by coming on my parenting pod- podcast. If you haven't listened to that already, the How's Your Father podcast, 
Nigel Winterburn is a sensational guest. He's excellent, talks about all aspects of parenting, but also we dig into a bit of football. And now he's been kind enough to answer the Arsenal Opinion podcast request for comment and to come on and, and record a special. Because when you get, you know, when you're in the presence of greatness, Pete, you know, we don't we don't take this stuff lightly, OK? We're not just getting on random geezers from the Arsenal, you know, b- back catalogue. We're getting on full-blown Arsenal legends, cut his cloth, and he's been wonderful enough to join us on it. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Nigel. Yeah, no, no problems. It's uh, it's a privilege to be on, um, and hopefully we'll still be mates after. <laughs> we, we are. I, I we've we've gone through the questions. They are they're obviously all friendly because um, you mean so much to a lot of Arsenal fans. But before we get into it, we are going to do a little bit of a bio uh, because there are some youngsters uh, that, that listen to the podcast mm. that might need a little bit of a refresh about um, your career. Uh, so, got you. You played for for Birmingham. Uh, for Wimbledon under Dave Bassett. We really want to talk about that. Uh, he played for Arsenal under George Graham and Arsene Wenger. Uh, um, f- finished out uh, for West Ham. You've got two caps for England. Small games. Italy and Germany, I've got that down as. Is Ooh. my fact-checking correct? Your fact-checking is absolutely correct, yes. It's, it sure is. Unbelievable. Uh, you've won a few trophies. Um, I've got you down as 11. 11... 11 I trophies. Uh, I haven't counted. So uh, would you like me to add up very, very quickly? Why would I want to count? It was uh, particularly, uh, well, to play professional football is always an honour. Uh, but to join Arsenal uh, and be part of so many successful teams, um, we were expected to win things uh, and we we uh, did it quite successfully through the period, uh, not not only that I was at the club, but a- after I'd left as well. So, um, to be honest with you, <laughs> I I haven't counted it, so I don't know what you're adding. <laughs> if there's any if, if there's any uh, losers got in there, there, then they're not they're not on my list. That's for sure. Well, this is the thing, though. This is how you know you've won a lot of trophies when you're like, oh, I've lost count. You know, I've played at grassroots level and I know how many trophies I've won. I know how many medals I've got one. I've got one solid one. I've got a five-a-side one. Like, I'm talking like proper leagues, you know, at that level. And they stood there with pride until my mate broke it, you know. So uh, you know that you're a quality player and had a great career if you've lost count of trophies. Well, I haven't. It's not as of lost count. It depends on what you're counting. See, when people ask me, uh, particularly sometimes when you get to talk to uh, like you're saying, the younger members, uh, you know, who Arsenal supporters who actually don't know who I am, but they've probably been prompted from their dad to come up and say uh, hello. And then they might drop into the conversation, well, you know, w- what team did you play in? And they say, well, Henri, Burkamp, Vieira, Petit, <laughs> um, you know, Seaman, Adams, Bold. And then they sort of go, oh, uh, oh, actually not too bad. So what did you win? So I usually say three league titles, two FA Cups, a League Cup and a European Cup Winners' Cup. So where the rest came from, uh, I have no idea. But <laughs> that's the ones that I really remember. We're going all we're going all in with charity shields. We're not we're not messing uh, around. Do you know today. what? If if I'm absolutely honest with you, I have no idea how many charity shields uh, that I that I actually played in. I could not tell you the teams that we played against or whether we won or lost them. Because to me it was a it was an opening, if you like, for me it was like an opening day uh, preparation game for the first game of the season. 
and, uh, and this no is pressure, the there's no pressure on the uh, on the on the charity shield because to me yes it's a it's a if you like you want to call it a competition but for me it was preparation for the first game of the season and this is the thing Nigel as well you your overall medal haul was greatly reduced upon what it could have been if you were playing in the times of the Emirates Cup, because we always done awfully well in there, didn't we? <laughs> a number of it. You could have been like, yeah, 25 medals, 15 Emirates Cups, <laughs> a couple of league titles in there. But uh, I, no, I'm, ha- I'm happy to stick to the ones that I just mentioned, because to me, those are the ones that you know really mean something to me uh, in, in terms of when you talk about, um, if you want to talk about it as success, uh, those were the medals that I, that I got at Arsenal that were, through that successful period. So those are the ones I remember. So, so um, I mean, you know, we, we kind of looked um, holistically at your career there and obviously the highlights being the trophies that you won. But if we take it back to the start about, you know, when you were in the academies, you know, trying to break through as a young player, tell us about how you felt in those days when you were, you know, because at that point, it's all about trying to make it professionally, right? It's all about trying to, you know, get um, into the big teams. And uh, what was your mentality like at that point? Well, to be quite honest with you, when I was, uh, well, when I first got signed by Birmingham City, there's no such thing as an academy. I was literally three months from leaving school. So I was 16 and uh, I went to play. It, so I was brought up in like sort of the Midlands. So, and I was playing, I went to school in uh, Nuneaton and I was playing in one of the Neaton schools games. And after one of the games, uh, Don Dorman, who was the chief scout of Birmingham City, came up to me and asked if my parents were watching the game, which they were. So my mum and dad always used to watch every single game. Uh, And he he, he sort of said, like, we'd like to we'd like to, you know, invite Nigel over for a trial, which they then put official uh, in a in a letter. Uh, to my mum and dad, I went for uh, a trial, and literally then we went to Birmingham City's training ground. They had about thirty boys that they picked for for that trial, and so we they picked two teams. We played a game, and then they um, they said, "Would I come back for another trial?" So I went back. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks later. Uh, and then after that trial, they offered me a, well, what was a, a base, basically an, uh, an apprenticeship. Uh, and, I, you know, I signed uh, pretty much straight after that for, for Birmingham. And then as soon as I left school, um, I was in and uh, pre-season training for my, for my first season for the youth team. So, um, unfortunately, there's no, no real academy stuff then where they get taken at five and six now. Uh, and mine was, if you like, a little bit lucky because there was someone actually watching the, you know, the Neaton Schools game. So it just shows, you know, being, uh, you never know who's watching you play because I had no idea on on the, the morning of that game that there was any any scouts there uh, watching uh, both teams play, that's for sure. Um, so can I just check one thing as well? You know, when you're playing at youth level, did you ever play in, because we know you as a sensational left-back, legendary Arsenal left-back, but did you, at youth level, like you hear with a lot of full-backs, like converted midfielders or strikers, did you ever play in a different position? And uh, well, if playing, not, did you want to? Um, well, I'd always want to be a centre-forward, scoring plenty of goals, because <laughs> that's where the adulation comes from, isn't it? No, I mean, I was... Uh, so in that game that I played in, uh, that Don Dorman was watching. I was playing in midfield, 
But what mm. happened in the trial games was obviously they're they you know they're picking. I think obviously I said there was about thirty players there, so they're they're picking the teams up. They're asking and they've got a rough idea of where you want to play, and so they're asking positions and before we started. And actually, what happened was there was there was uh, on that day there was only one other guy there, one other young uh, player there who played left back. So they asked if anyone would volunteer to play left back in the first trial game. So, as always, you always have loads of midfield players there. So I just thought I'll play left back because that looks like I'm going to get at least 90 minutes in the first trial game. And they might switch me into midfield uh, anyway and give me a little bit of chance if it's not going well at left back because they know I'm a midfield player. And I played, uh, so I played in left back. I played all the game. And then when they invited me back for the second game, um, they said to me, oh, no, you are playing left back this in this trial game. So I played left back again. And then once I, once I signed the apprenticeship forms and then I went in uh, with all the training, with all the other, uh, uh, you know, new young boys, um, I straight away I was put as, put as a left back. So, um, I had a fleeting, a few fleeting appearances in midfield as a uh, playing in. Um, uh, I played a little bit of men's football as well, just for my village team. But I mean, literally when I started, if you want to call it professionally, but you know, as a as a YTS and apprentice, I, I went straight in at, at left back, and that's where um, that's where I've I've played ever since. Fantastic! It's so weird, isn't it? It's so brilliant, I should say, about how. Players can go not only on a journey through their footballing career, but also like positionally, like you literally start, you know, transferring into, oh, I was just forced to be there one day and then they cut a career out of it. I mean, more recent examples of fullbacks uh, being a modern example, Hector Bellerin, he was like a forward for years, wasn't he, at like Barcelona and whatnot, and then um, in the academy. And then when he came to Arsenal, it's like, do you want to give right back a go? Oh, go on then if I get a game. And it's like, no, you're going to have a career out of this, you know? So, yeah. yeah. I guess you won in the long in the long run. What would you say is the most important thing you learned as a young player? Like, if there was one lesson that was the most significant in your advancement into becoming a professional, would you? What could you distill it down to being? Well, I always tried to um, learn from, particularly at um, a young age, tried to learn from the mistakes that I made. Uh, you know, you have to accept that mistakes happen, but. How can you rectify them or cut them out? Uh, and like everybody, uh, my I always used to think about the you know we used to be told a lot about the reaction to losing the ball. You know everybody loses the ball, but it you, but your reaction can spark another reaction from your teammates, uh, and you see that with the crowd a lot of the time. You know when your team comes under pressure or they lose the ball, but you get someone that's hairing around like a lunatic. But the crowd really do react to that, and that can give players around you a, you know, a, a lift as well. So it was just a case for me as just reaction to, um, you know, lo- maybe losing the ball, making a mistake, uh, something that happened, maybe the winger getting the better of me. How am I going to when I come up against this winger next time? How am I going to make sure that uh, I get the better of him? Uh, and, and and basically just trying to make yourself better every single game that you play, particularly when you're young, you're learning, you know, you're trying to learn so much. So it's the defensive positions as a fullback, 
you know, how to try and read the game better than than what you, you know, what you already know it because you're only just starting in your career. So there's so much that you can, there's so much you can learn uh, along the journey. Oh, well, that, that I think kind of sums it up really in terms of the mentality when you think, when I think about the famous back four, and we'll go deeper into that, the, the, the way you just spoke then, I think kind of um, summarizes the way that everyone of those players looked and approached the game. And it was a, you know, we're, we will learn from mistakes and we'll, and basically you just got better and better and better because it was not, a, it was not about having a collection of pure athletes. It was people who got together on such a wavelength that as a unit, you were, you know, borderline impenetrable. And I love that kind of work ethic that you're talking about, which has obviously served all of you so well there. Um, we've got a question as well, which I know Pete has got his fingerprints all over because he's a massive Aaron Ramsdale fan. And um, it, well, do you want to do? Do you want to do that question, Pete? Uh, no, you can do it because I know that you okay. are now a Ramsdalian. A Ramsdalian. I am a Rams. That, that's that's the nickname for him, by the way, Nigel Ramsdalian. If you, if you're fully bought into the Ramsdale Collective, you're a Ramsdalian. Um, but he, sorry, go on. Yeah, I'll say this. So uh, if again, fact checking. Uh, we are an amateur podcast, but I did notice that you were given um, a, a player, a supporters player of the season award very early on in your career. Is that correct? A Wimbledon? Uh, for, uh, yeah, well, for uh, uh, so for Wimbledon, I did I did four seasons uh, for Wimbledon uh, and I won the uh, uh, the player, well, the well, supporters player of the year. Um, for the four seasons that I was there, so um, oh wow, so yeah, I, it didn't. Like there was, listen, at, at Plough Lane at that time, we had what six thousand, I would say, loyal supporters. So it didn't cost me too much money to uh, buy a few of them <laughs> off to make sure that they uh, voted for me every single season. No, but yeah, the four seasons I was there, uh, I just got a fantastic, a fantastic rapport with the uh, Wimbledon supporters. Um, I think they just like my uh, style of play. Uh, and, yeah, luckily enough for me, which I'm very, very proud of, I, I got the, the, the Supporters Player of the Year four years winning. So, it's uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it's quite nice to look back at those early days before, um, before I, I joined Arsenal. So, the four awards is, is, is amazing. And a, a few Arsenal fans were sniffing that Aaron Ramsdale has been relegated twice. Um, he also played for um, uh, a version of Wimbledon and he won three player of the year accolades. Uh, like how, how does that, um, so you mentioned energy earlier. It's obviously uh, a key factor of that fans thrive off energy and rapport. How important do you think um, those sorts of things are to players when they're developing, you know, like the, the support of the fans, knowing that they really care about you, and you know they're they're engaged. Oh, I think in I think career. I think I think it's I think it's massive, but um, you earn the respect of the supporters with the way that you play the game. You know, you don't just join the club and they go, "Oh, I love this guy," because you know when I came from Wimbledon, uh, you know Lee Dixon and Steve Bowl came from Stoke. I'm pretty much sure that a lot of Arsenal supporters didn't know a lot about us three players. So we didn't come in as, you know, big, big names. In fact, you know, some, some of the supporters may have been questioning what George Graham was doing at the time. So you know you've got to earn 
you've got to earn that uh, that that right. So it, it's it's slightly difficult, uh, uh, different. Sorry, at, at Arsenal, but at Wimbledon, for me, being released by Birmingham, um, you know, I didn't need any more uh, motivation. Um, a lot of people would tell you when I play a game of football, I'm very very passionate about it anyway. Uh, but uh, being released. Um, you know, in the in the, the same season, really, that I was about to make my first team debut for, for Birmingham under a different manager is, is a, you know, is a kick in the teeth very, very quickly. So the motivation was all there to, the motivation for me was to prove people wrong uh, and try and build some sort of career. And luckily enough for me, Wimbledon took that chance with me. Uh, and then my style, as I said to you, my style of play, which I think, you know, probably Johnny will say, and most people will say, was 100% committed. And if you're 100% committed, um, then most supporters, uh, they they take to you. And then, as you say, when you win trophies along the way, it, it sort of helps as well. <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. And from a fan's perspective, I couldn't agree more. So much of what we even see with modern Arsenal, it's, you know, you can accept limitations on players, but what you can't expect, accept, I should say, is a lack of effort. And that is what we've had more than a fair share of players over the last 10 years. Players who just at least, I'm not even saying that they definitely are, but they at least seem like they're not really trying. And it can be infuriating to fans. You know, obviously, Mesut Ozil's probably the most high profile one of those, where, where fans would just get annoyed because it's like, it might be his playing style, but when you're not, things aren't going your way, it looks like you're not putting 110 in and that can just drive you mad when you've paid mm. hard-earned money to go and watch the team. When you're bought into, even if you're not in the ground, you're watching the team, you're taking your time out and it looks like some people aren't bought in. So players who are committed are always going to be, you know, ingratiate themselves to the fans the most. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you are right. I mean, you know, we do become, even myself, you know, when I've retired and I look at some of the Arsenal games, I never, I never truly believe that a player is not try, trying. There are all, there are a host of things. You know, it could be lack of form, uh, and then people perceive that he doesn't want the ball. You know, but his decision making. I think when you're not playing well, your decision making slows down. But you know, I right, you, you are right in the body language of players, particularly when it's not going well. Some of them find it very, very difficult. Uh, and I think the crowd pick up uh, and sense on that. And I always try to, I always try to keep energy within my game, particularly when I wasn't playing well, or the team wasn't playing well, to try and drive one a better performance from myself, but also two a better performance from my teammates around me. Uh, and sometimes they would be driving me and 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 you know and giving me the you know come on, you're a lot better than this. Uh, and it's just how you react to it, and it's it's just a it's just a mindset that you, you know, that they're saying this is not acceptable. We know you're better, and you've just got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing uh, through that particular game. And hopefully, you come out of it with the worst way tonight. If you're talking about a particular game with a draw, and certainly not a light a loss when you're not playing well, and then you can quickly move on to 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 the next game. Yeah, Nigel, you played for you played for Wimbledon, and again for fans that don't know, Wimbledon was was quite the scene. Uh, cut a club full of character, 
um, you know, the, the, you, you were there through the the crazy gang era, where it's not just fans holding you accountable; it's 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 the the players around you. Like, what was it like playing for Wimbledon during that time, that special um, time? Well, for me, who was uh, a young shy boy coming down to London uh, with the likes of oh, Vinnie Jones came, Dennis Wise came, John Fashion, who was there. They had uh, you know Alan Cork. Uh, they had a lot of big, big characters, um, you know, but the one thing, you know, although I might be quiet and reserved at times uh, off the pitch, then put me on the pitch and uh, I feel I'm equal to anybody. Uh, but they, so, yeah, maybe a little bit. Did they intimidate me in, in the dressing room? No, I don't think that, I don't believe that they did because I knew when I got out on the pitch, I was at least their, their equal and I would show them what I was all about. And I think you command their respect from that. But I, I would say, yeah, it's, you know, it could be, it could be an intimidating dressing room to be in, but we had such a fabulous period when I was at Wimbledon because we came, you know, through the, through the old third division. Uh, and in those four seasons I was there, we get, we came up into the, what is the championship. So at that time it, it was, uh, was the top division. So, you know, we had three promotions in four seasons. So with a with a basically a group of players that most of them have been released from from other clubs. But we had a style of play that everybody hated to play against. Nobody wanted to play at, uh, at Plough Lane because, you know, it was such an intimidating place in terms of, you know, it didn't look its best. The dressing rooms were shocking. <laughs> the water was freezing cold. The opposition thought we'd give them cold water deliberately. We didn't even have we didn't even have any hot water in our own dressing room. <laughs> you just so hadn't paid the bill. <laughs> uh, well, well, someone didn't pay the bill. That was for sure. Uh, but it wasn't the best place to be. But it had, you know, it, had, it, it those players got a bond together with with you know those uh, supporters, and we scared a lot of teams. No one wanted to play us. So, so let's um, take it forward to Arsenal now. Um... And your eventual move to the club. Um, it's kind of like a double, uh, a double question. This one. So, one, how did the move come about? How did, you know what was the process? Who called you up? Um, you know how did that all uh, pan out? And also, when you finally realised the move was going ahead, what did it actually? What did Arsenal represent to you at that stage? What did it mean to become an Arsenal player? Um, and yeah, how were you overall feeling about that move when it started to become a reality? Well, I got a, I got a call to say that um, uh, Sam Haman, who was uh, you know the the owner Chairman. of yeah uh, yeah owner whatever you want to call him of, of uh, Wimbledon, and uh, I, I got told that um, you know uh, George Graham would be that they'd given permission for for Arsenal to speak to me, be in contact with me, and then we would uh, I had to set up a meeting with uh, George at uh Highbury so I got that I got that call and I went to uh and I went to meet him uh and probably the worst thing I ever did was went on my own <laughs> and I you know I walked into those marble halls and up those steps and as soon as I entered that uh, entered those marble halls it was like oh boy oh boy this is it this is for me I'm having all this uh and then so I'd also had a conversation with Dave Bassett who was a manager at Wimbledon about wages and, and different things. Uh, and let's be fair, when you get in the office with George and he's sitting at that big, big desk, 
Um, I've wilted. <laughs> He's intimidating, isn't he? Yeah, well, just, yeah, just, you might as well just put naught, 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 naught on the contract <laughs> and give it me and let me sign it. Uh, because everything I asked for was no, no, no. <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> so uh, I, I came out signing uh, for, I came out, I did sign there and then. Uh, but I came out for a pot noodle with a, a chocolate bar. A lot poorer than what I thought I was going into. <laughs> like a car phone warehouse deal, that was, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, like a stack of cards collapsed so quickly. Oh boy, oh boy, yeah. When I look back and see that first contract now, it always brings a smile to my face. Well, George, George Graham. I mean, I, I think he, as Arsenal fans, um, we kind of. You know, there's a perception of someone when they're in a, a public um, arena where you, you you can create a uh, perception of them in your own mind. But he really does seem like a person who is what it says on the tin. You know, he doesn't he doesn't put on a show. George Graham is hard lined. He's shrewd. He's you know quite straight to the point, straight talking. I mean, was there any other side to George that we maybe didn't see or was that exactly as... No, you I know, think that was him. He was, you know, it was a bit like... I actually saw George the other day and, uh, you know, it was great to just talk about some of the things that, that happened. But, I mean, he was pretty much... I saw him as, you know, George Graham, the Arsenal manager, uh, and it was a bit like, you talk to me when I ask you to talk to me. But his organisation... Uh, and what he wanted from each individual player, uh, and then collectively as a, as, a, uh, a, um, as a team, and then how he wanted to set up against the opposition was second to none. Uh, and boy, oh boy, those hours that we that back four spent out on that training pitch with nobody else in sight, no ball on the on the on the training pitch, just walking through positions. Um, sort of tells you how ruthless and how organised that he wanted to to well, particularly first of all have his back four, and then have the the rest of the of uh, the team uh, around them. And let's let's be not beat around the bush. Every single player knew their job, and if you didn't do it, you were out. And yeah. that was that was pretty much what it was like. So, so you know when you were saying, uh, just, uh, just going to ask Johnny. A lot of people accuse um, Arteta of, of overcoaching, but what you are talking about there sounds overcoached. Do you do you believe in the concept of overcoach? Like how like how is it training in an environment that's that meticulous and precision? Like what, what's your view on that? Well, you see, um, you know, you've got to have you've got to buy into what you're being coached. And for me, joining a big club like Arsenal, you know, I I saw myself as being pretty good defensively. Um, but what you're doing is, as I've coming up through the leagues, I'm coming up against better and better opposition, opposition and you can always uh, improve. And, you know, for me, just joining Arsenal, uh, I'm going to listen to everything that the manager says and wants me to do particularly in those early days. And um, overcoached, well, no, I don't know whether I really uh, agree with it because as much coaching as you do, when you're out on that pitch, 
you are there to make the decision. The manager's not there for you. So, you know, you could take an example of um, George Graham used to want uh, uh, defenders up to the edge of the box, which we showed inside the pitch. So what happened was is we would show inside, cut off the outside of the pitch, both sides. To make, the idea of that is to make the pitch smaller. But if I'm coming up one against one on, on a player and I sense that there's danger for me letting him come inside because I haven't got the cover, then I'm going to show him to the outside and I'm going to back my ability to stop him getting past me putting the cross in. So... You could talk about that as a little bit of coaching that the manager's saying, I want you to show inside all the time. But, but when I'm playing, if I see something and I don't don't think that's the right situation, I'm not going to do that just because the manager said. Uh, and then you uh, pray that you've got the decision right and they don't score because you know you're going to get a bit of a rock in half time. But you've got to back yourself. Yeah, yeah you've, got no. to make those de- you've got to make those decisions. And, you know, it's no good. So the coaching is all about putting something in place for the players, uh, giving you like, so for us, the back four was giving us an understanding of what the manager wanted defensively, individually and collectively. And then we put that together with a midfield and a forward uh, combination. But, if we needed to change something, we didn't sit. We didn't sit there and ask the manager if we wanted to change it. The players on the pitch would just change it. We might we might pull the wingers in from wide areas slightly, or we might pull one winger in to make you know the third midfield player and leave the other winger out wide. The players would do that on the pitch. You've got to back yourself that the manager understands and can see the situation and the danger, and you're taking the authority away from the manager. Because he's done his bit on the training pitch, he now has to trust you out on the pitch. Yeah, so so I I completely get that, and and you know it's a really good point about yeah you can have an overriding tactic or approach to the game, but ultimately it's the players that have to you know mm. uh, use use their judgment um, when they're approaching the game as to when to jettison those ideas if need be. Mm. Yeah. But I'm just I, I'm just wondering on two fronts, and this kind of ties into possibly where we're at a bit. At the moment, though, we'll speak a bit uh, further on it as, uh, later on in the pod. Do you feel that when you have a manager like that who's got clear ideas about how they want you to play, that you need success to come along at certain junctures along the way to justify in your minds all of the training and all of the lessons you're being taught, as opposed to if you don't win win those little victories along the way, you might start to second guess what you're doing. If if those victories and, and successes don't come at the right points, it's like, well, actually, we're just working hard and not really getting any further. And is are we being taught the right things? And, and possibly, you know, with the kind of personalities, when we think about the back four you played in, you're all strong personalities. You're not messing around. And you had all got experience before, you know, coming before playing under George Graham. And so, you know, you basically were already a, a little bit, you know, um, resilient to uh, exterior forces telling you how to play the game. Do you think that, you know, the kind of points I've made there are true, that you needed those successes along the way, or you might have gone a, become a li- little disillusioned? And two, is it due to the kind of personalities of you guys for how it ended up? being employed successfully 
Well, I, I, you know, I, I think you 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 have to buy into uh, what the manager is asking you to do. Yes, I agree with you. You want you want success or you want victories along the way because that boosts morale. It it shows you that the manager is is preaching to you, to you and, and and along the way, but giving you those results if you want. I suppose you know you're what you're talking about is with Arsenal at the moment is you know we're we're on a bit of a roller coaster ride already this season and we see the first half of Tottenham and then we see Brighton and Crystal Palace and you you're probably thinking you know are the players completely buying into uh, what Mikel Arteta is trying to achieve uh, so I can see I think that's what you're saying anyway Jelly yeah. so I can I can understand what you're saying but you've just you know, the manager puts a framework in place for you to play a, to play in, but you don't stick to that framework for, for 90 minutes. It's there as a guideline. You've got to be a big enough character to break through that barrier if you don't think it's right. Uh, and if you break through the barrier... Uh, and you do the wrong things several times in a game that leads to, let's say, conceding a goal, then the manager's going to be jumping down your throat. And I would I'd expect as well a lot of the players in the dressing room, or they should be. But if you are trying to break the barrier and you, let's say, you, you take the team with you and that leads you on to creating a goal and scoring, then... You know, I would think that that you know the manager's going to be going to be fine with that. It's all about trust. It's all about belief. Um, and you know, there has to be a structure there from the manager because he's the one that's going to take the can uh, at, at the end of it. I mean, you could say maybe you say, well, with the team that George Graham put together, it was easy to see why everyone went on the journey because uh, my first season, obviously, we got to the League Cup final, but we lost. Uh, second season, we won the title at Anfield. Yes. You know, 91 again, then we won the league. 93, we won both Cups. 94, we're in the Cup Winners' Cup final. Arsene, uh, sorry, George Graham goes. 98, Arsene Wenger's first season, we do the double. So there's never really a long period uh, for those teams where they were not really successful. One little period, if you like, between... You know, we got to the final in uh, uh, 95, but we lost. Then all of a sudden, you know, it, there's a change. And um, very, very quickly, Arsene Wenger's in. Uh, and we're, we're, you know, that's a different manager, a different style of play. But we're up and running very, very quickly because, um, you know, Arsene Wenger brings you freedom, it lets you express yourselves, uh, lets you organise yourself. Uh, and along with that, he brings you the double. So... There's not a lot to really go wrong, if I'm honest. And and it's great that we've moved on to the Wenger era because that's where we kind of wanted to touch on before again. Well, you know, kind of comparing to the modern times as well under Arteta. But when Wenger did come in, what did he do initially? Because bearing in mind, you're an established unit, particularly the back four. You've got massive characters like Ian Wright knocking about the dressing room. Not going to, you know, I, I, I see the Wenger documentary coming out, which I'm actually quite hyped about. Um, and like Ian Wright's got a quote going, who? Like, who's our coach kind mm. of thing? And it's like, you know, when Wright is there just kicking off, basically, like, I'm a big, I'm a big 
name. I'm not going to, you know, mess around here. And yet Arsene has to come into that dressing room with you guys and gain your confidence and, and you know, your buy-in, as you talked about. How did he do that? How does a new manager well, go th- into a team like that and get everyone on side? Well, I, I think I think for me, you know, as soon as I... I think I've said it on many, many occasions. As soon as I did a couple of training sessions with, with Arsene Wenger, uh, just his thoughts the way that I perceived that he wanted people to to play. I had in my own mind, I know I've got to make sure that he's going to want me to be part of his squad going forward because there were little rumours floating around that he'd been told that the back four was too old. He needed to to break that unit up uh, and, and, and rebuild the team um, completely and... Um, I think Arsene Wenger would tell you he's a big enough character uh, and I think he basically just said, I'll make my own decisions. He looked, or from what I've, from when I've spoken to him since, he looked at the back four, he looked at the ability, he, looked, he, didn't, he discounted the age, he looked at the passion that we had for the club uh, and he thought that he could develop that with, you know, the midfield players and the forwards that he was, that he was bringing in. And let's be fair, uh, nobody knew who Arsene Wenger was, so you know, you know, it was a case of let's see what this guy's got to offer. Uh, and players are pretty ruthless when one manager gets moved aside. Uh, let's be fair, you want to be in the team, so you're trying to do everything you can to make sure that you're going to be part of the team uh, going forward. But as I said to you, with Arsene Wenger, it's very, very quickly I knew and hoped that I could convince him that um, you know these old legs could could keep going for a little while longer. <laughs> he wasn't uh, wrong. He wasn't wrong, was he? It was, uh, and he cleared out some, you know, he cleared out some big names during that period that were unexpected. Uh, Hartson and uh, and Paul Merson was was moved on, like, you know, two players that you know, seemed like they, they might have had a, a use in the system. Were you shocked by that? Um, I think it became clear that he wanted to just mix things up. Um you know, a little bit, uh, and then obviously Vieira came in, Petit, and then Anelka, you know, Anelka came in and he, he brought some other players in uh, as well. So I think, yeah, to start with, like, well, wasn't sure he was going to be going or he was going to go. Uh, but then when you the new players come in and they get into the team and they show you what they're about, you sort of, well, this is our team for now. I wish my, you know, my mates, my teammates, the best for the new club they're joining, but you've got to be ruthless. And actually what I've got to now focus on again is the players that I'm playing with and not the players that I've played with in the past who have, who have now been, been moved on. Um, and that's that, you know, that's what you, that's what you have to do. That, that's the thing when, when you're going from, you know, Paul Merson, great player and a, a, a very much talent, but then when he's leaving and Mark Overmars is coming in, you're like, Oh, right. Well, you know, the new guys aren't exactly shit, are they? <laughs> I mean, they're pretty decent. So, uh, obviously, you you know there's a an overall plan that you can kind of buy into when the calibre of incomings, Vieira, Petit, suddenly might, you know, you start to think something might be building here. And, and when, when did that start to develop for you? Well, I think very, very uh, quickly you could see with the style of play. And then, obviously, with... Uh, with Arsenal with that first uh, season, his first full season, we did the pre-season training, uh, and then you know just just the the, the the things that he just tweaked within training, 
and then afterwards what he wanted how he wanted you to be as a, a, a group together and the science that he was bringing into uh, to the football club and, and like you say it, it, it didn't it wasn't always like Overmars, Petit, Vieira, Anelka. You know, he brought in more players that fitted into the squad. They didn't all all play all the time, but you could see that, that there was a there was a development there um, within within the team uh, for sure. And uh, as I said to you, it's Arsenal just gave you that freedom to just go out and play. Uh, it was just like playing on Hackney Marshes on a Sunday afternoon. It was just like, oh, just organise yourselves, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was just his his coaching style was just so unique. It was, you know, it was all about keeping the ball, moving the ball, making options, playing forward. You know, you know disrupting the opposition. Um, it was, it was just, it was just completely different to what uh, George Graham had brought to the club in terms of. That more that organisation in, uh, in terms of uh, I'll say if you want to call it a rigid style, but you know George, you knew with George what you had to do and what you didn't. He didn't want you to do. I think Arsene Wenger was well. I know Arsene Wenger was a lot more open. He he encouraged you to do a, a lot a lot more things. But I've always said that I, I think in my period that George Graham set up the revolution of Arsenal. And then Arsene Wenger took it on again to uh, to the next level. What what did uh what did you have to adapt in your game when Wenger came in? I mean, it's like to to be able to play two different styles of football that are so divergent, but at the highest level. You know, it wasn't like oh, you know, we were playing a you know a, a more structured game of football, and then uh, and then someone came in and let us express ourselves. We won trophies. You won trophies under George Graham, and you won trophies under Wenger. The, the they're the counterpoints in football. Like, did you have to change anything in your game? Were no, you surprised at how how you could I elevate did, it? I, I didn't have to. I didn't have to change my game at all. I got encouragement to to um, uh, to play and join in. Uh, a lot more whereas with George if the ball was down the left you could go and join in all you like if the ball was down the right you had to come in and almost play as the third centre half you know you didn't go and you didn't go and join in with the, when the ball was going down the right hand side but with Arsenal it was a bit more it was a bit more open there was a bit more freedom just go and express yourselves but people you know uh, my theory on my game and football is quite simple, is that I back myself every single uh, minute of the game, one against one, against any player, any opposition. They may, they may be the world's best, but I back myself to get the ball off them because that's how you have to think. And then when I've won the ball, I give it to someone who can be more creative with the ball than me. And people look at me and laugh and think you're taking the piss out of them, but I'm not because my job is to keep a clean sheet win the ball and get it into midfield or into the front players with quality passes uh, as quick as I can. And the quicker I win the ball and give it to Vieira or Petit, who I know are going to create more than probably I, I am, then I'm doing my job to the best of my ability. And that's how I, that's how I played. That's how I saw my game. I kept, it, I kept my game uncomplicated. I didn't need to do anything else. I just needed to do my job well. First part of it was defensively. The second part was, as soon as you win it, just give it, if it's a three-yard pass, five-yard pass, 10-yard pass, 20-yard pass, make that pass successfully. 
uh, and then let them let them get on with it, support uh, and make new angles or make sure defensively it's very, very tight in case we lose the ball. Simple. So, so obviously, Pete, you know, uh, kind of highlighted the fact you'd had success with both coaches, but let's now take it towards uh, a more current time, the setup with how Arsenal are. So you talked about um, like the kind of, the importance of individual players in Arsenal's overall um, performance and output. Just a a quick little, you know, uh, exercise. If you look at that 98 team that you played in, how many players out of the team at the moment do you think would get in? Just, you know, for all the things that you said were important about players and their agency in a team's success, when you look at the current team, how many of them do you look at and think they could play with us at our best? Uh, well, what you have to ask, which is very, very difficult, and, you know, you don't want to be uh, disrespectful to, to this current squad, is yeah. how many could get into the squad and push those, push those, that, if you want to talk about the 1918, how many of those players could push those players hard? Uh, to get into the team, uh, and I think Saka would Saka would uh, do that at this moment in time. I think uh, you know potentially uh, Smith Rowe uh, would do that, uh, and then I, if I'm honest with you, I'm not sure uh, about the rest. But we what are... about Tierney? Tierney's one I thought you might say. Uh, yeah, but um, you know. He's got some good left backs to overcome uh, <laughs> in the lights of Kenny Sampson, because you know you're trying to draw me in, Johnny. No, uh, no, not but, at all, uh, not at all. So he knows the history of Arsenal left backs, you know, and I'm only going back a short period of time. Uh, and I, you know, Kenny Sampson, Ashley Cole, uh, two that you only have to mention. Uh, so that's the level that he's going to need to to be at. But I. Uh, you know, I have been impressed, if, if that's what you're asking me, with with Tierney. I think he, you know, I think he's a player that potentially would come into the squad and would would push those uh, left back, particularly the old codger that was playing in that '98 team, maybe. <laughs> uh, Nigel, out of this, uh, I'll frame a question that's a little bit easier for you to answer. Johnny, trying to get the tabloid headlines. No, over there. not at all. Come <laughs> but I've answered it all. I've answered it you... before that most uh, I don't see. Uh, you know, barring about two getting into the squad, but we are talking about a different period, so yeah. you have to be slightly, so you have to slightly careful. Is uh, for ability, winning mentality, and uh, and dr- players driving themselves forward. Um, I, I I don't see many get getting into that team on uh, and, and pushing those players out on a regular basis. You know, I've, I've possibly two or two two or three. Would push, but I'm not sure they'd even get in all the all the time. But obviously, Saka is a player that I immensely like. Smith Rowe, I think he's still got huge potential, and we're we're going to see him uh, develop. Um, but you know, some of the others have still got to, uh, for me, have still got to earn that right to to put them in with the group of players that I, I played in. And I'm only picking one team out of, of of 98 because I don't. We're already going back quite a way. Uh, and I don't like to do that because, you know, the game does... There's still 11 players, the ball's still round. Uh, yeah, but yeah. The, the mentality of how you play has changed slightly. 
Can, I, can I just say, sorry, Pete, I know you got a question. I just want to say, just because this, I think, is a big, a big, big subject for a lot of Arsenal fans. When we look at the current lineups, there seems to have been a degradation in the kind of resilience and strength and mentality within the squad. How do you think, like from you guys and, you know, even onto Ashley Coles and, you know, that era Sol Campbell's as character's been in, how do you think that has happened to, as to where to get to where we are now? And is it just a case of we lost certain players or was it a change higher up the club in terms of the mentality that has drip fed down to the to the players? I think I think for me it's a, a case of uh, you know I I describe it as um, you know I came in you know when I came into the club and was playing there was already some senior players there uh, and you knew what it was and and also some of the younger players you you knew what it was like and what it meant to play for Arsenal and then obviously the teams I played in became very very successful and then if you ask Thierry Henry and Vieira when they came in. They were left in no doubt what it was like to represent your club. Uh, and then, so obviously, then I move on and, and some of the other guys move on. That's then down to Thierry Henry. That's down to Vieira. That's down to Petit to tell those players, the new players coming in, what it's like. And then you keep passing that down the line. But once you start to lose the quality of player and you start to not become successful... Um, you know, you you can't keep beating that 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 brush because that brush is gone. You know, it's those trophies are not there for the incoming players to look at and say, boy, oh boy, this guy knows what he's on about because he's been part of, you know, the double team or he's been part of, you know, a team that 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 uh, you know got to a Champions League final. You know, I'm just you're just surmising what it's like, and you keep you hope that you pass that on down the line. But we've lost, we've I feel we've lost our way a little since we we went went to the Emirates. Well, um, yeah, so the, I, I was I was going to build on the question. I think it's a, it's a difficult question to say which of the you know we've restructured the club around youth this summer. No mm. one's getting in the '98 team because they're you know they've got to earn their stripes. You know, I think that's a difficult question to mm. say. One of the greatest Arsenal teams ever. Who's getting in? I, you know, uh, even Saka and Smith Rowe, let's be honest, that's going to be a difficult team to break into. But if we are gearing around youth and we're trying to have a bit of a, a restart and we're trying to do things in a more sensible way where we can actually compete, which of um, which of the new signings or players coming through do you look at and you're like, I'm, I'm excited uh, by the talent and where they could be in maybe three or four years' time? Well, I've always said to you is well, Saka was a is a young player that's lit everybody up who burst onto the scene. But he was a player that um, I know talking to Freddie Lundberg that he had high expectations before he'd even made his under twenty three debut. And I think I was actually covering the first under twenty three game when Saka. I think he came off the bench. I'm not one hundred percent, but it was one of those games because I was talking to Freddie, and he said, "By far and above, this guy is going to be." If anyone breaks through, it's going to be this guy first, uh, and he's proved that. And he's, you know, he's he's been way ahead in terms of performances uh, for such a young young man. Smith Rowe is a, a player that I've watched uh, before he broke into the first team as well that I, I really like. Um, uh, and you know, then you're looking now, and I've, you know, we've we've brought players in, 
Uh, and we've just now got to wait and see how they're going to develop. You're right. It looks to me as if the structure of the club this season is younger players, and we've got to coach and build them. But along the way, we've got to get some sort of success in terms of winning games because with social media now, you can't go five games and don't win because you're getting slaughtered. So Nicoletta is not getting that time. Uh, And people saying, oh, he's already had 20 months. Well, you know, I think I've already said this this season for Nicoletta is massive. There's no European football. There's plenty of time to coach. Uh, he's got to he's got to get it right by the by the end of the season. The supporters have to see a style of play and a progression by the end of the season, uh, and then we can we can make uh, judgment. Uh, Lukonga's a player that I like. Uh, I think he's very rash, very raw at, uh, at the moment. But um, I have a feeling that you know in a, in, in a couple of years' time we're going to see a uh, you know a, a, a real a, a real development. The others, I'm just waiting. If I'm honest, we're very early in the season, uh, and you, just, you know, you know, people keep quizzing me about Ben White. Uh, Tommy Atsu's come in has done very, very well. It seems very like he seems full of energy. I think at times he's going to get caught out, but I don't mind that. He's he's still learning with the Arsenal teammates, but you know, I think it's difficult to say after the Palace performance, but and, and Brighton, but I think the there will be some well there has to be some progression there or the supporters are not going to stay on board you've got to get results along the way and that's so so important for Mikel Arteta it doesn't it doesn't need anyone like me to be saying this is what you need to do he knows exactly what he's got to do he's got to mold that team he's got to get a style of play with young players that he's brought in and he's got to get a winning mentality and he he has to do it from the very, very start, or he's going to lose the supporters. Um, and then your job becomes very difficult. So, so you know, you've summed it up well well there. And uh, to be to be quite honest, when, when you say about social media and that, I'm one of the guys who's had enough. Uh, I'm very much one of the ones who I've seen enough. And quite frankly, you know, you said it right, and I think you've been fair there. But for me, I don't think the fans can be accused of being knee-jerk. It's been two years. It's, you know, over that now. And like you say, at the end of the day, you're still in the job. You have to start delivering now. And it's not like we're asking to win the league, but we've got to start at the very least being serious about getting top four. You know, we've got to, you've got to show us something. It can't be this erratic. But what do you, you know, as I said, I've laid my position out there, but what do you personally, when you look at the current setup? in the wake of that Crystal Palace result, what do you see as being the most glaring issues for Arsenal to deal with on pitch that Arteta needs Uh, to get right on the pitch? It's quite simple for me when you... um, So if you look at the Tottenham performance first half, we had aggression, we had what I call power play. um, We were all over them like a rash. We were moving the ball forward uh, well, quickly, swiftly. We were in control of the game. And in the other games that I've watched, uh, so we look at the Brighton and Palace, I, I felt that, the, the, well, the passing was off. Uh, and if you want to be a passing team and the, your passing's off, you're already under a lot of pressure. I feel that we still don't move the ball through the lines quick enough. I think at times up front, we're too static. When we're trying to, if you want to keep the ball and break the opposition down, you've got to have 
movement along the front line, players looking to disrupt the back four. And if they're all coming to feet all the time, I, I don't see how anybody's going to uh, disrupt the back four. Saka does it very, very well. But at times, I think we're too static in, in our in, in our movement. Uh, and I think our, our level of performance from Tottenham to maybe the rest of the season, the, the difference percentage-wise is way too much. So we've, we've got to, the level of consistency has got to be closer to the Tottenham performance in that first half rather than the, the Brighton and the Palace performance. What I do see, the positive from those two games, is I saw a team that I didn't think was playing very well in Arsenal, but in, from Brighton, they dug in and dug out a result away from home. I like that. And then the other night, uh, it looked like the game had gone. We make a couple, you know, we make those substitutions a bit of more renewed energy, uh, uh, and there seemed a bit of desire and belief to get back into the game. I see that as a real positive, and I hope we can take that forward into the Villa game. Um, you know, but I, I, my thoughts are quite clear. You, we desperately need a win against Villa because four points from two home games is acceptable. But if you end up with one or two, uh, then people are going to say, here we go, here we go again. And as you're, as you're rightly doing, we, we then question the manager and his tactics. Um, but you, you, uh, at some point you have to trust for a while. I, I sort of wrote off a little bit last season because of COVID and, uh, and, and, Mikel Arteta not getting a lot of training time. That's why I'm saying about this season. And, you know, he's got a lot of time to work with those players. He's been a little bit disjointed because of the international break, but he's still getting he's still getting a lot of time to work with players. Uh, and this season for me, as I said to you, is going to be huge for him in terms of where we, uh, where we progress uh, and where we are come the end of the season. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you had another question, Pete, because I have a little game for Nigel Winterburn. I do want him to play. I don't know if you've got a question or should I go into the game, Pete? Would you, you, could, you, you could go into the game. Wicked. Here we go. Here's my, I'm putting my game show host on, OK? And feel free to play at home, uh, play along at home. If you are listening to a podcast, you'll probably be able to guess at the same rate. Now, Nigel Winterburn, you are, without a shadow of a doubt, certainly one of Arsenal's most famous wearers of the number three shirt, you know, if not the, okay. Um, and this game is called Free Freeze because what I want you to do is name, all you have to do, there's more than that, but all you have to do is name three wearers of the number three shirt since you last wore the shirt for the famous Arsenal. Okay. Um, there are more than three, but all I need is three for you to be successful. Sylvania, Tierney and Cole. Done it. Thank you. Well, he's right. absolutely destroyed your game. No, 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 no. I I looked at this and Silvino. Oh, well, Silvino might might be not. Well, he might not have wore the three either. He did not wear the three. He did not wear Ooh. the three. Yeah, well, he's a left back, so you. you... Oh, I'm not now talking about left backs. Got to be wearers of the three. Yeah, well, There's... then you've got me there because you know what? I never ever look at the numbers that players are wearing. It's all about positions. So I've got well, myself I... out of jail very quick, very quickly there. <laughs> I can go through it. I did. Uh... So, so it's, well, Ashley Cole and, and Tierney. Yeah, they are. Yeah. 
And who else wore the three then? Because are they worthy of wearing the three is what I'm going to ask you. Well, exactly. And I did have it in a document, but um, I'm pretty you lost sure remember it. <laughs> I can remember it anyway. Uh, someone, Andy Price, is getting it there in the thing. He's getting it in the comments. Because after you, Nigel, it went to another Arsenal legend, but we say it in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, Igor Stepanov. Do you remember him? Well, Good I do, Igor. but he certainly wasn't a left-back. <laughs> no, he so, wasn't a left-back, but he was no, a number three. So, uh, your question is a little bit misleading. In When you talk to me about number threes, you're talking about shirt numbers and not the position of left-back, which is actually yeah. the number three. No, I know what you mean. I, I'm so, going strictly off we shirt can have numbers. That, we can have that debate next time we're in the studio. But <laughs> I'm never going to be able to tell you players' numbers because I never, ever look at them. Uh, well, it's not enough. what number they've got on their back. It's how well they play. That felt like a really nice poignant uh, fault to be left on. But just so everyone knows... Bakary Sanya was a name as well, right back with a number three. I don't like it when people do that. It's like William Gallas with a number 10, awful decisions at Arsenal when it comes well, to Nigel squad Winterburn numbers. Nigel had a two on at one stage as well. Dreadful. So, I can't stand it. Give us the right no. back with two and left back at three. We don't, we're, we're simple creatures, human beings. We don't like this change, you know. Um, obviously, you had Ashley Cole. You got that. Kieran Tierney as well. Um, and I think, was there one more after Bakary Sanya? I haven't found my list. I don't know why. Uh, no, I think that's it. So I think I've named them all. Um, that, but yeah, overall, Nigel, I think you you have passed it because you did say no, well, that you've gone more down the left back route rather than the number threes. And yeah, that, I think right, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, um, a bit, it's a bit. Your your question's a bit misleading to a good friend. <laughs> Sounds like you're trying to stitch me up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, never, never. Wouldn't do it. On uh, on on that note, after slaying Johnny for the rules of his game, uh, we want to say, Nigel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was um, absolutely fantastic to talk to you. I grew up watching you in the stadium, so it's a real honour to, to have you on the show. I know Johnny speaks incredibly highly of you as a person as well, and it was, uh, it, it, it was great to meet a hero, and thank you for giving so much to the podcast. The fans are absolutely going to love this. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah, people no, in the comments so- as well. Just to go through them, Nigel, people saying legend, genuine legend, DJ Diamond in there, legend um, from TF Palace. My first game was at Blackburn at home in 97 as a seven-year-old, as a young CB, um, basically bigging you up. Uh, Nigel is a legend from Sir Mikel Arteta. I'm proud that he was born close to where I live in Nuneaton. So, yeah, yeah you've got true. someone there. Yeah. Um, nothing and... there from uh, nothing there, Johnny from the Canio or Brian McClare, no. <laughs> <laughs> the Canio's okay. left the chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is one. We'll 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 put it out because there's a genuine question there, which was oh yeah. And BH Gunners TV says Nigel will never forget that scream of yours against Chelsea in September of '97. I love that goal, Ed De Hoyer. Ed De Hoyer. Oh, yeah. But here's a question from Demantos to leave you with. Who do you think is the best Arsenal player of all time? Oh, I hate I hate this debate because um, I had the privilege of playing with two of them. Uh, one was Burkamp, who I do say is my greatest. If, if I'm pushed, I have to say is my greatest ever player uh, because I only played with Thierry for one season, uh, right. and after I left, that's when Thierry started to come into his pomp, 
and uh, I had the pleasure of watching and playing against Thierry. Um, well, once when I was at West Ham, uh, West, uh, remember me trying to slide tackle when he equalised in the two-two game at Upton Park, uh, and then when I retired, I had the pleasure of coming back to to Arsenal and watching him. But uh, those two guys, uh, for me, in my what I call as my period, uh, boy, oh boy, they were unbelievable, uh, sensational players, true legends. Uh, but I think they would also say that uh, they played in some some very good teams as well. I think we can all agree with that. And what a wonderful yeah. way to wrap up this podcast. Nigel, thanks so much for coming on the Arsenal Opinion podcast. It's been a real dream having you on. Um, we've Yeah, we've certainly both enjoyed it. And you've you've spoke brilliantly about the club. And, uh, you know, uh, for a man who is so... Um, respected within the club it's just an honor to have you on the podcast as i say yeah listen at, at times it's hard to keep the faith and keep believing but you know we've got to do that we we need to stick together even in the difficult times we need to help try and help the team drive forward but uh, i do understand some of the frustrations but uh, hopefully we're going to we're going to get back to where we want to be as uh, as supporters and and that's first of all getting back into the top 4 and then hope Hopefully one day challenging for the title. We can all dream, can't we? Hey, I'm dreaming. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on, you got it. So, Amazing. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Amazing. Cool. All right. Well, thank you uh, for everybody that's listening. If you've got a nice comment to make about Nigel, leave it in the iTunes comment section. And on that note, ciao for now. Thanks, Nigel. If you love to be remembered as the person who gives the best birthday gifts, I'm here to tell you that 1-800-Flowers.com is your ultimate birthday gifting destination. 1-800-Flowers has thoughtful and artfully created options that are guaranteed to deliver the best birthday surprise. Shop thousands of unique gifts at 1-800-Flowers.com for exclusive offers and great values. To order today, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.